Let us pray. O God, open to us the words that are your word, these words of love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Song of Solomon is an unusual book in the Bible. It is one of two books that make no mention of God or the Lord. Esther is the other one. Esther is a narrative. It's a story about the history of the people of Israel. But Song of Solomon is not. It is connected to King Solomon only by mention of his name. And what else comes besides that is an extended love poem. Moreover, it is a poem composed of erotic language that most people unfamiliar with it are surprised to find in the Bible. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Say the words that we heard from the section we read this morning. I chose this one, one of the more well-known and conventional passages from Song of Solomon. There are other passages I might have chosen that would have been quite embarrassing for the reader, for any of you who might have been the reader today. And the obvious question becomes, what is this book doing in the Bible? Two answers are most common. The first answer goes back to a group of rabbis who met around the year 90 in the city of Yamia. They met to name the collection of holy books that would make up the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible. They argued over the Song of Solomon even then. They wondered if it belonged. And the group whose argument prevailed, the ones in favor of it, claimed that this book is an allegory. It is a poetic representation of the love shared between God and Israel. Christians later followed suit. They said something similar. They adopted it into our Old Testament, calling it an allegory for the love between Christ and the church. That is the first explanation. It is an allegory. The second explanation takes the love poetry at face value. It simply says that this book is the Bible's affirmation of human love. We don't know a whole lot about the origins or intentions of Song of Solomon. As a result, much speculation is out there in order to make sense of it. Scholars go back and forth arguing that this is either one long continuous poem or a collection of many short poems. Some call it an allegory, others say it is not. Some say it is about lovers who know one another intimately. Others say that it is a wedding song of a betrothed couple who long to be together for the first time. It has been compared to other poetry and storytelling of its time found in the region. 
Egyptian cave paintings and Mesopotamian stories of the gods Dumuzi Tammuz and Inanna Ashtarte. All of these theories have their merits, and all of them seem to be searching for some reasonable explanation for this book and its inclusion in the Bible. They want us to make sense of it, to become more comfortable with it. As I thought about this book this week and all of these explanations and what I want to say to all of you about it, I kept remembering a scene from a movie. Dead Poet Society is the story of an English teacher who arrives at a strict competitive boarding school hoping to inspire his high-strung students to love the English language. And here he is introducing them to their poetry textbook. Gentlemen, open your text to page 21 of the introduction. Mr. Perry, will you read the opening paragraph of the preface entitled Understanding Poetry? Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech. Then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph, and its importance is plotted on the vertical, then calculating the total area of the poem yields the measure of its greatness. A sonnet by Byron might score high on the vertical, but only average on the horizontal. A Shakespearean sonnet, on the other hand, would score high both horizontally and vertically, yielding a massive total area, thereby revealing the poem to be truly great. As you proceed through the poetry in this book, practice this rating method. As your ability to evaluate poems in this manner grows, so will, so will your enjoyment and understanding of poetry. Excrement. That's what I think of Mr. J. Evans Pritchard. We're not laying pipe, we're talking about poetry. How can you describe poetry like American bandstand? I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to it. Now, I want you to rip out that page. Go on. Rip out the entire page. Hear me. Rip it out. Rip it out! Go on. Rip it out! Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Gentlemen, tell you what, not just tear out that page, tear out the entire introduction. I want it gone. History, leave nothing of it. Rip it out! Rip. Be gone, J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. Rip, shred the tear, rip it out! I want to hear nothing but ripping of Mr. Pritchard. We'll perforate it, put it on a roll. Not the Bible, you're not going to go to hell for this. Make a clean... Not the Bible. You're not going to go to hell for this. 
I stopped there for a reason. Of course, he's talking about ripping the pages when he says that. But the idea is clear enough and applies to this whole idea of poetry in the Bible. Much of the time, we approach the Bible and read its texts out of a place of some fear. That we're going to get it wrong, that we're going to misunderstand it. We look for a method when we read the Bible to understand it, a rubric to assess its quality. We fear that we're going to get it wrong. And those attitudes keep us from reading God's word in a different way, a way that I have to imagine God might enjoy. When did you last read the Bible, God's word, simply for the love of it? Simply to enjoy hearing it, to let the love of God and God's love of creation wash over you like poetry. When did you last read the Bible just to feel God's love? Think of other love poetry you know. Words that fall upon our ears with delight. Words that drip from the tongue of a reader like honey. How do you feel when you hear Byron's words? She walks in beauty like the night. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. Often love poetry is purely secular, but many times poetry draws its inspiration directly from the pages of the Bible. Walt Whitman, reflecting on our creation stories, wrote this in Leaves of Grass. As Adam, early in the morning, walking forth from the bower, refreshed with sleep, behold me where I pass, hear my voice, approach, touch me. Touch the palm of your hand to my body as I pass. Be not afraid of my body. Be not afraid of my body, writes Walt Whitman. He might have added, be not afraid of the beautiful words that seek to describe it. Is it so unthinkable that the Bible would contain words of such beauty about God's creation? Is it so unthinkable that God would want something in the Bible that reminds us that we are beautiful and God thinks so? In every way God made us, each of us in our tremendous variety and uniqueness, God takes pleasure in the creation that is you. God longs for you to know that and blesses these words so that you will hear them. Is that so unthinkable? 
The Song of Solomon is not only beautiful, there are other things that deserve to be remembered about it, reasonable things, things that may even help us appreciate or understand other parts of the Bible. People often regret the Bible's lack of gender balance and its lack of equality. The product of a patriarchal time and culture, the Bible is mostly the work of the voices of men. But the Song of Solomon is a poem that is the speech of a woman and a man. In this book of the Bible, the woman has equal voice. Furthermore, this expression of love is in no way coercive or one-directional. It is thoroughly equal and felt on both sides. In these days, there is so much needed attention given to coercive and abusive acts committed with our bodies in religious places. We need these reminders that the love God has in mind is consensual, shared, affirming to both people. Where God's love is present, there is no place for abuse. Another explanation I've read also bears some repeating, especially this week. Some scholars believe that texts like Song of Solomon played a role in ancient funeral rites. Funeral rites. On the occasion of a death and burial, there was every reason for grief and sadness, and we have evidence that there were intentional ways of celebrating there was dancing and the singing of romantic stories and songs just like this one. These things were done as a reminder that there is life even in the face of death. When I read that this week, I couldn't help but see people in our country looking for that kind of hope. In the wake of the death of John McCain, our country experienced some rare moments of political unity as both parties celebrated his civility and integrity, his humor and dedication and selfless love of country. And there was a sense that there are not many like him and might not be again for a long time. When we lose someone who brings about feelings of grief and questions of who will step up next, we need creative, bold, moving reminders that there is still life to be lived. Poetry is meant to heal us and to inspire principled and visionary people to rise up and make their own voice heard. There are rational explanations for poetry. If you want them, they are there. For me, any and all of these explanations are secondary to the fact that it is beautiful. That it is an affirmation of the beauty of all of God's children. We often forget that the Bible serves that purpose. 
On a communion Sunday like today, it's worth remembering that the bread and wine are supposed to do something like that as well. The Last Supper and the death of Jesus speak of sacrifice and atonement. And also, in this meal, there is a reminder to us that even after Jesus dies, God's love for us lives on. That reminder comes to us in simple things from God's created world. Bread and the fruit of the vine. Another poem of the Bible, Psalm 34, verse 8, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We often say those words during communion. That's what we're meant to do at the table. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God's goodness and love comes to us in so many ways. In the Bible's calls for justice and fairness, for good and generous living, for sacrifice in the face of struggle. God's love comes to us in the Bible's repeated story of grace, forgiveness, and redemption, lived by the prophets, lived by Jesus, still existing today in the Holy Spirit. And God's goodness comes to us in simple and beautiful things. Bread and wine. The gift of love. Words to remind us we are beautiful earthly creations. Words that have the power to carry us to heaven. Amen.